Hello everybody, James here. Uh, the student, the head student I like to think of a franchise university was Shane Douglas and here is the Dean himself. And it, it actually is a Dean oh. Douglas kind of thing. Should we not say Dean? <laughs> Who's that? It's <laughs> the franchise, yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> it, I, I've only got six PhDs, so I, I'm really not at the Dean's level just yet. Close. I'm, glad I'm working on that seventh one, though. I'm, I'm glad that because that actually is going to be coming up very, very soon. But well, you are the dean <laughs> of franchise university. We can at least say that. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, as I say, we don't have like I do like four minutes of plugs with the Dutch show, but for here we've got none. So we're just going <laughs> to plug straight through and nice. we'll do our best. And we were talking about in your house three, the pay per view. This was your uh, pay per view debut as Dean Douglas. And to start off this show, we are talking about your match with Razor Ramon. That I know for a fact that you've got a lot of things you want to say about the match specifically before we do a couple of bits uh backstage segment henry o'godwin and ted dibiase are doing this uh you know the 900 line and ted dibiase still covered in crap uh from the slot bucket which was fun to see and then wrestlemania but, but there, i'm sorry to jump no, in no. there was something on that call they got the split screen right mm -hmm. and ted's rambling you know he's uh, on the right side of the screen he's uh, he's, uh, he's like talking about the finish and you see Mark Canterbury, Henry O'Gawain, goes like this. Which tells you they're sitting right next to each other with a split screen. I said to Chris, did you catch that? <laughs> yeah. I'm just staring <laughs> Little at things that train I catch. Yeah, yeah, you catch it, you know. Uh, WrestleMania 11, the special, uh, airs on Fox next Saturday. Did, I don't really don't think they do this very often, but it gets a 3.8 rating, making it the most watched wrestling show of the year, at least up to that point. Now, Here's the fun stuff. Mr. Bob Backlund turns up. Uh, do not exacerbate me. Where is your lexicon? All these words that he knows how to pronounce, but doesn't quite know how to put into a sentence. And uh, Which makes it great. <laughs> yeah, it makes it even better. It's fantastic. They're just like, do not exacerbate me, which in fairness is the right place to put that word. Um, but I actually wrote this, where's your lexicon? And then he just goes, yeah. He just adds a yeah at the end. Fantastic. <laughs> Uh, he calls the audience <laughs> he calls the audience plebeians and stupid etc then Bob introduces the administrator and criticizer who disciplines his students from the University of Knowledge Dean Douglas <laughs> and uh, you walk to the ringside saying words to the audience like failure uh, before a VT yeah. rolls of razor smacking you uh, backstage I think this was from SummerSlam uh, where you were at the mm -hmm. chalkboard and then there's a, where he goes I remember that vividly. I had the videotape, and it's, it's, it looked like he absolutely clumped you with that punch. Yeah. Well, we, you know, there, it was funny. We had gone through this little dance there. <clears throat> Excuse me. Where, <clears throat> where uh, one night we walked in. I was being very careful in, in our matches. Careful not to be ECW, right? Because, uh, you know, in ECW, we laid our stuff in fairly solid. Like, if, if I was hitting Pitbull, too, I wasn't hitting him as hard as I possibly could hit him, but I was hitting him with probably 60% live round. You know, the, the, and when you, there's a famous picture of me hitting him and the picture was taken right as my fist is hitting his forehead and there's fans standing around their faces are all, and you see the sweat popping off, but you can see his skin like recoiling from the punch. And when I went to WWF, I didn't want to bring it up there and all of a sudden get tagged with his, Oh, he's stiff, you know? Because what one guy in ECW thought was like the way we did it, uh, somebody else going, I'm doing that here. So he came into the dressing room one night and he 
Scott made it a point to say, I guess to try to embarrass me, said, uh, hey, hey uh, Dean, uh, uh, we're, we're every bit as tough as you guys in ECW. You don't have to pull your shit with me. Go ahead and lay it in. Okay, noted. Next night we went and did, and I laid it in like I would be in ECW. Astonishingly, he came into the dressing room and he said, hey, Dean, I know what I said, but geez, you know, like, like come on. I said, like, well, he said ECW. That was ECW. And, uh, you know, it, it was just like one of those types of things. The odd part about all of this uh, to me was in just a few short years before, you, you know, uh, Razor was in, like with Johnny Ace and I were together, Razor was in WCW's The Diamond Stud, traveled with us almost every loop, um, got along great, no issues whatsoever. And also prior to this, I, in 90, you know, been in WWF and Marty, Sean, Dustin and I would all uh, hang together. We were sort of the click then. Um, uh, click in the, in the sense of being a group that hung around with each other, not the, the shit the click did would later pull. Uh, so when I'm watching this, and there were several things, and I pointed out during the, during as we're talking about the match, the fans over the years have heard me say stuff like lead-assing me, um, throwing the timing off. And my God, a bunch of this stuff jumped out at me last night watching the match. And I'd have Chris rewind it and say, okay, right here, watch for this. Oh, yeah, I see it. And then watch this. Just little things that really glaringly, uh, for for me, the trained eye, it just screamed out off the screen. But then even for someone like Chris, who's just a fan of wrestling, watching it and playing back and going, oh, okay, I see what you're saying. You know, it's uh, it's really glaring. And you know, other things, but we'll get, get to that in a second. There was in that B-roll that you're talking about at the very outset um, where he uh, – I want to hit this microphone. That's something I saw my shirt. Uh, but he um, – uh, there was – they also B-rolled when he was wrestling X-Pac, I think, and I, it was from uh, Canton, Ohio. Mm -hmm. And I run down – climb the top rope and do the splash and roll out. <laughs> I remember it incredibly well because I had been in street clothes all day and had to take my wrestling. I drove over like a two hour drive from my house. So I didn't have my wrestling gear with me. I just brought Dean Douglas street clothes. And when I ran down to ringside and climbed up and dove off, one thing about the WWF ring is it's stiff, right? Cause it got these giants in it. When I come off, I had no knee pads on underneath and so when i hit and i gotta then scurry out of like so the referee doesn't catch me right and if you watch me hit the floor i do this like sort of like dance like my, like I, I fucked my knees up and hurt like hell to run and i thought after that i put knee pads on dumbass if you gotta mm -hmm. do something like that uh but those are the things that jumped out at me so let's go ahead and get into the match let's get, get rolling with where you uh, well, uh, just before we do, there's one thing, because you get on the microphone briefly, and this mm -hmm. one jumped out at me. Twice you say, instead of wrestler, WWF superstar. Now, is this yeah. a directive that Vince had told you to say, avoid the word wrestler? So even back in 95, yes. you were told certain words not to say. Yeah, well, we were superstars. You know, we weren't wrestlers. We were WWF superstars, which I would later throw up to Vince uh, when the whole pay dispute thing came <laughs> up. You know, the, the 6400. I said, you want me to go out and talk and brag about and dress like a WWF superstar uh, and then pay me sixty-eight or $6,400 over four months? So there's something incongruous here. You know, <laughs> one, one of these things doesn't belong here. And, uh, but yeah, and as I watched it last night, in my head, I had sort of sanitized a lot of that out. The promo itself 
tells me that if it weren't word for word written for me, it was things that I know that either Vince or Vince Russo or somebody wanted that character to say, because the fans have seen enough of my promos. I don't talk like that. Um, you know, he's going to fail his test and, uh, you know, this ring is my classroom and, you know, those types of things, which ironically was in one of the first promos I did I, in my entire career, even now I'm, I'm used to looking into a camera lens, you know, and just sort of this non nondescript lens. You're not looking at anybody. And I walk into the promo room, you know, they had those booths set up. And I see looking back at me, this big television screen of me, which, you know, makes you know, okay, which way do I look better? Uh, which well, my hair's messed up on that side. So I'll turn any boogers hanging out of my nose. Is my teeth all clean? You, know, you become very self-conscious because of that. And they give me the countdown. I disappear. Screen is black. And as I get ready to start the promo, some words start coming up. I went, whoa, whoa what, what's that? And I remember the first line. It was, uh. Uh, Razor Ramon, you're nothing but a, a, a street uh, street thug. Well, that ring is my class, or when I get you in there, I'm going to teach you a lesson. And I thought, oh, I'm not fucking saying that. That's stupid. It's uh, and uh, and Russo had just walked in and he went, uh, but, you know, what? Dean doesn't need a script. But I would still do these things, and I would see myself. I wouldn't see the black screen. I'd see a picture of me looking back at me, which if you're not used to that, it really throws you. Um, so, yeah, so we do the promo, and I, that jumped out of me uh, really good. And I had not watched that match one time since then. That was the first I watched it. Like, like I told you, Moose was saying, like, you know, he's working, right? And Bob was in the ring. I'm going, no, you, well, where do you see him? And, you know, he's talking, and all of a sudden they play the music. sounds familiar. And I see me, I'm like, wait, B? It's, um, at first, I meant, like, I'm wrestling Bob. I, I don't remember wrestling Bob when I was there. Um, but, yeah, it, it – it, uh, more than my memory recollects of me plugging in you know, superstars and, and the ring is my classroom and you're going to fail my test and you know, blah, that cornball-y crap. Uh, I, 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 in my head, I had not done any of that. You know, I, I, you know, did it a different way. I guess in looking back at it and seeing it for the first time in all these decades, uh, I, I did do more of that. You know, and as I recall, there was a, obviously when you go to work for somebody new, you want to make that employer happy, right? You want to give them what they want. And so I was trying to, if you watch the delivery, there's, there's tinges of franchise in there, but he doesn't look like the franchise. And so like his outward demeanor was a bit different, uh, but I, I could see like the, the, this like sort of mixing of the two characters. Now, uh, I don't even need to say anything else. The whole match. And you were also saying beforehand that, uh, was it lead assing you said? Yes. So there were several. First of all, what struck me was I don't remember Scott and I having any matches that good. I thought it was a really good match. Um, and and you'll see. Let me put Scott over before I you know throw some heat on him. And and, and again, not disparage the guy. We put that heat behind us. Just describing what I'm looking at. Watch when you're watching that match back at In Your House Three how impeccably Scott is placing himself when uh, he's outside the ring and I do the vault over and double hammer down on his back. He's got himself selling, 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 sees me in position and puts himself right in perfect position. I mean, impeccable. 
So that will tell you that Scott knew how to do it, right? And if you watch, there's that segment of the chaining at the very beginning of the match. Uh, I was pretty good at chaining, and uh, I was surprised at how crisp he was at it. And uh, not surprised at that moment, and, and like looking back at it, because I don't remember Scott doing that. Because later he would like fall back more on being the character, hey, yo, toothpick and woo and all that bullshit. Scott knows how to do it. You know, you can see it in, in, in this match. There is the first thing that jumped out at me was uh, the uh, at the end of the chaining, uh, we then go into a spot where uh, where he goes to suplex me, drops me behind, and then we started this this into the rope thing. So, if you watch closely in the first pass, Scott throws a right handed clothesline. He's right handed. Watch the second. Now he's throwing left. So if I'm running straight at you, okay, and I'm you just did the right hand, so I'm going to be coming to your right side, but last minute you do this, which I don't recall Scott ever doing that at other times. He's now making me do this, coming off the ropes. So I look a little bit, hey, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. Like, why did he go that side instead of this side? It should for a right-handed guy, it should always be this side. Even for left-handed guys, but very occasionally, somebody who's predominantly left will say, Hey, I do everything left. And so you know to go to that side. That was the first thing that jumped out at me. There was the uh the second thing was on the uh uh where uh I'm trying to think of a specific spot in the match. Uh Well, I, I, it'll pop in my head as to where it was in the match, but there's uh, we're on the floor. So as we've you know fought out to the floor, and the first time I, I pick him up for a slam on the floor, right? Bobby's drawing the ref, and watch his plant foot. His plant foot is where he's supposed to push off to make this. Um, you know, and Scott's a big guy, two sixty five, two seventy. He's a big, big man and long. So fortunately at that point, he gives me zero help. It's just sort of like a, just goes in and I get him up because I was strong enough at the time and early enough in the match, no help whatsoever. Later in the match, however, we end up on that same side of the floor and I pick him up to run him into the post. Watch what his legs do. He's just a dead hump of weight. Now, if I wanted to have been a smart ass at that point, I could have just gone, and dropped him, let him fall on his shoulder, let him fall on his neck, whatever. Uh, your screw up, not mine. And uh, but you know, you, you're not thinking that way at that specific point of the match. You know, th there's all these unwritten things in your head. A, you know that Vince likes this guy, right? Uh, B, Vince is putting you over in this match, and you clearly setting up some kind of an angle here. And so this is the time that both of you want to be on your best you want to show like hey we can deliver for the crowd and i think we did deliver in this match uh there was nothing about that match that i watched that i went yeah mm. you know i think it really the finish of it uh, uh the, the running with Pac, um the storyline they were playing that i'm trying to weasel this wedge between these two friends uh which is what a, a guy like that would do uh I thought a lot of it was impressive. I was far more impressed. I don't recall in my memory Scott and I having anywhere near 
that good of a match. It always seemed like pulling teeth to me. Uh, but after watching it last night, I was like, whoa. Like, see, Scott is showing he can go. Watch the chaining segment. Watch his positioning. Watch when Pac comes out and the, the way he pushes him and everything. Uh, you don't look at any of that and go, yeah, it looks phony. Right? Everything looked look, look crisp. Um, the stuff where he's got me in the arm bar, watch his positioning of his hands leaning on the shoulder. It, it, perfectly done. Perfectly executed. I couldn't give a poor grade to that. Uh, but, you know, then start smacking the head. Now, people go, I wouldn't take that. Well, that's his character. That's what his character would do, which is why I gave it back to him a little bit later. Like, I'm okay, you wanted to punk me, and I'm going to punk you back. Um, <laughs> when you see Scott leaving, you can see Eddie ain't happy. Um, and again, it just perplexes the hell out of me. Not that anybody wants to say, well, losing a match doesn't matter. Losing a match to a debuting guy, like you'd said earlier, right? This, uh, you know, if you don't want to do this angle, go to Vince and say, I don't like the guy. I don't want to work with him. I don't think he's very good. Whatever, whatever your argument is, I'm, I'm guessing that the way he had Vince's ear, that there'd be more than probably a, a, a receptive audience. Uh, but, you know, I think that he realized that we could go, you know, we could do this. And, uh, that that was my biggest takeaway was even in spite of those things that I pointed out, and there were others less less obvious. But for the fans watching it, the first slam on the floor, no help. The second slam, which was a back run into the apron into the post, zero help. Uh, and then the the clothesline right, the clothesline left. Uh, you know, forcing the guy running to do sort of this, like oh, like oh, I'm in a zigzag here. And each of those things sort of makes me look like I don't know what I'm doing. And to me, that that is even more of a testament to Scott's ability. Mm -hmm. You know, because if you're going to do all this stuff, you know, like you're intentionally doing it, and it's and he's wise enough to know that it ain't making him look bad. Like there's no fan in the audience going, "Hey, why did you just throw a left-handed clothesline?" Uh, but to the seasoned eye, you look at it and go, "Okay, well, right then left." No sense. Um, and Chris then asked me, he said, like, is it always? I said, yes, unless you're working with somebody that's just over the top left, like predominant left. Then they'll typically say to you, hey, James, I, I, I do everything left, right? So you know, like, to shoot to that side. I've never seen anybody do one and then the other. Um, so just, just those strange oddities that stuck out of me. Reading between those lines as a trained eye, you can see that Scott really does know what he's doing. And I think if you look at the later incarnations of Razor Ramon, not doing those things, uh, relying, falling back on the, hey, less effort. I don't have to do as much. I can do this in the fingers and the toothpick and get over. I, uh, I, I was telling Moose last night, I tell people this all the time. When people would say, hey, let's go out there and take it easy. The, the fact of the matter is this, the truth of it is I didn't have but one speed. I didn't know how to go out there and, be 11 tenths the franchise or nine tenths the franchise i knew how to go out there and do it um but he he showed like and all those things good and bad that he knew exactly what he was doing and what really stuck out to me was his positioning and in the entirety of the match he's he's in the right place at every time it would be interesting because you wrestle Razor Ramon once again in the next In Your House a month later. So it would be interesting to have a juxtaposition of those two matches at some yeah. point and, you, and see what he's doing in that match compared to the other match. And um, as you said before, uh, we'll get off this very quickly, but uh, 
you wrestled Razor Scott Hall dozens of times probably in uh, your short tenure with the WWF. So what changed? What changed from the match that in in your house to the later matches? There there was an overt attempt starting in Montreal uh, to get me into the click. And, you know, anybody that's ever known me on the road, like, you know, obviously you have guys you're friendlier with or whatever. Uh, but, like, I, there was never a time that on the road that I ever said, okay, these are these are my only friends in the dressing room. I can't talk to any of the other guys. I just, uh, I'm, I'm a weirdo that way. I just like to float around and talk to people and, you know, just it, it breaks the monotony of being, you know, in that dressing room like that because it could get awfully long. Um it was during that time we were making the train. We were going from Montreal, me, just incredible. Uh, and, uh, who was the, uh, man of war then Portuguese man of war, Candido and Tammy. Uh, so we flew in, rented a car and the four of us driving. They had this long, we had this long drive after, uh, to, I think Sault Ste. Marie, which is on the other side of, uh, Lake Michigan. Uh, it's a long, long drive, but at the building that night, uh, in Montreal, when we first walked in, when you walked in the old Montreal Molson center, you walked in, there was a, like a long sloping curved walkway that went sort of down around. There were two dress rooms off there. So I went to walk in one of them and Sean grabbed my coat or whatever and said, uh, oh, no, he dressed with us and they dressed all the way at the bottom <clears throat> past the Zamboni machine for the uh, uh, Canadiens. The Montreal Canadiens dressing room was on the other side of the Zamboni machine. So we walk in there and it was, you know, I've, I've, yeah, they were all there. Uh, Sean uh, Michaels, Sean Waltman, uh, uh, Triple H, Kevin, and Scott. Well, when we first walk in, it's me, Kevin, and Sean. And... So I put my bag down and start getting it open and they start this in front of me, uh, Sean asking, he was supposed to work with, uh, Kevin was supposed to work as champion. Kevin was the champion working with, uh, Lafitte, uh, Pierre, uh, the pirate. And, uh, he had been Carl Ulay, his real name. Carl had been working his butt off. Montreal had slowly been dropping. Um, the building was now about typically half full. And he had gone, they advertised this match, you know, local guy from Montreal working the world champion. And, uh, he had gone up and done all these radio interviews and newspaper interviews and appearances and had gotten the house up a bit, like about 10, 15% up. Kevin said to, again, everything I'm saying is what I heard these two say. I have no idea what Vince did or didn't say because <clears throat> he wasn't in the building that night, but. Kevin said, well, you know, Vince wants some kind of a hot finish so we can do a return. And Sean said, fuck that. When you worked with the champion, uh, did you put him over clean? He goes, well, yeah, but. He goes, no, no, no buts. And he kept pantomiming it, like the jackknife, and then one, two, three. He kept counting out. And, uh, you know, finally, you know, Kevin, like, sort of, like, relented. But he, to Kevin's credit, you could see him trying to say, like, no, that's not what Vince wants. And just Sean's like, hey, fuck that, whatever he wants. So we, he goes to walk out after he finally convinces Kevin to do this. And Carl comes walking in as Sean's pulling the door open. Carl's walking in 
And Kevin, who's just been saying horrible things, or I mean, not Kevin, Sean, saying horrible things about Carl. Because, hey, Carl, how you doing, buddy? And he, you know, this is all happening right in front of me, like right here in front of me. And uh, he walks out. I mean, well, that was strange because he was just talking shit on him a second ago. But I see when the door opens and Sean says hello to him and walks out, Sean does a Huey and comes right back in, and he's standing right behind Carl right here in front of me. <laughs> Watch this. I'm going like, what the hell's transpiring here? This is strange. And uh, Carl goes, oh, Kev, you thought about the match. Uh, what would we do tonight? And Kev, Kev's going again to his credit, going, well, uh, he's like, drag it out. And Sean, meanwhile, is right behind Carl, making no sound, and he's going like jackknife. He's doing it silently behind him. <laughs> okay, there's a new one on me. Uh, and finally, Kevin goes, ah, I was thinking like, you know, just jackknife. And Carl goes, no, 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 we can't do clean finish. You know, have to do a return. And Kevin, Sean keeps doing the same thing. And finally, Sean turns and walks out. Well, I got up to go get a, a draw. And right behind me, here comes Kevin and Carl. So like, we're all in the dressing room upstairs now. And Sean gets up on a, on one of the benches and goes, excuse me, excuse me, everybody can I have your attention. I'm Sean Michaels. They call me the heartbreak kid. This is uh, Carl Lillet. They call him Pierre the Pirate. He goes, well, Pierre the Pirate here is too big of a, a star to put our champion over tonight. And Carl's going, Sean, what are you talking about? That's not what I said. And no, 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 we all heard. And now they start like, you know, Carl can take care of himself. Tough kid. And he starts like going after someone. Of course, everybody's pulling him apart and everything. It's just this bizarre thing going on. Like I'd never seen in a dressing room before. So we get back to the hotel that night after the show. And the, as I recall the match, I remember hearing that the match was like pulling teeth. We get back to the days in at the Montreal airport. Justin and I are staying in the very first room off the desk. I mean, I could probably almost touch the front desk from my door. And Chris and Tammy were in the very next room. So as we're walking into the rooms, the click comes walking in behind us. And one of them taps me in the back and said, hey, we ordered pizza and beer. We're down in a room, whatever. So I get go in and get my shower and throw myself away. And I go down to the room. Again, these guys are my buddies at this point. I had no reason to be leery of, uh, of Kevin or Scott or, or I didn't really know Triple H too much at the time. And I really didn't know X-Pac at the time other than like who they were and stuff, of course. But, uh, I walk into the room. Kevin was laying on the bed, all stretched out and everybody else was sort of just like hanging around the room. And Sean says to me, uh, Hey, did you see what happened in the building tonight? I said, yeah. He goes, uh, what'd you think of that? I said, well, I can see his point. If you, you beat him clean, you can't do a return. And Sean said, see, I told you everybody, Shane understands the business. Then he turned to me and he said, but you have to understand, Shane, things are different here. Things work differently here. I went like gravity falls up. I said, like, what do you mean different? He goes, I, I, I joked around about it. Now they start all like trying to figure out how they're going to screw Carl for doing what the, the owner of the company wanted. And, and they keep getting stiffer and stiffer. Kevin finally picked the phone up and he said, Fuck it, I'm just going to call Vince and tell him to fire him. And to this day, I cannot remember which one did which, but either Sean went over and hung the phone up or, or Scott did. And they said, no, no, wait, let's think about this for a bit. And now they start 
like really getting vicious. Let's do this to him. Let's do that to him. Let's do this to him. And I'm just watching, taking this all in. And I'm not sure, are these guys being serious? Are they pulling my leg? Like I'd never seen this anywhere in wrestling. And I certainly never saw it from these guys before when I hung with them. And finally, whichever one didn't hang the phone up said, I got it. Let's have Vince starve him for the next three years. And I remember thinking like, it was like I was watching a woman being raped or something. Like this was disgusting to me. And I got like, I almost wanted to go down the room and take another shower. Like it was just smarmy as could be. And, uh, that's where I think things started transitioning when they saw that I was going to be this willing compadre that just went along with their stuff. And, uh, you know, the whole few weeks later when they do the next in your house, that whole weekend was, a, now this is post in this interim time, Sean gets jumped by like 175 <laughs> Marines or something at the, uh, at the bar. We're in Germany at the time. We had already known when I left for Germany, I knew Vince had already told me and Sean what he wanted in the match. He wanted me over, uh, and then WrestleMania for the world title would be chin music. Me, Vince and Sean were to fly in like Tuesday of that week to work on something really spectacular. So I got back from Germany like Thursday or Friday night. The next day I was, I, I get a phone. Wait, wait. The first night I'm home, I get a phone call from Davey boy. And, you know, Davey was also like a grandma, like to stir the pot. And he said, uh, Hey, it's worth let you know, uh, uh, while, while you were gone, Sean's been telling everybody in the dressing room, he's going to embarrass you on the pay-per-view. Well, I knew what, what, what he was doing. I just didn't know the reasoning if he made it up or if it was legit. And I said back to him, I'd like to see him try. I'll stretch his ass on that pay-per-view. And that was the end of the conversation. The next day I get a phone call from JJ Dillon saying, uh, uh, hey, Vince doesn't need you and Sean in on Tuesday now. Uh, he'll just see you when you get to this weekend. And I said, uh, why? I mean, something happened? He goes, well, no, Sean's had a relapse of his concussion. I said, how did he get hit in the head again? Because remember, this is my the time of my medical school training, right? How did he get hit in the head? He goes, why did he get hit in the head again? He just had a relapse. So you know, I've had the phone call with Davey. Less than 24 hours later, I get a phone call from J.J., Changing all this, and I'm like, oh, okay, I can see what's going on. Well, I can't do anything to change it, right? So I just flew in. Jim Cornette and I flew in on the last flight the night before the pay-per-view. And I was rooming with Dustin. He'd already checked into the room, so I got up, and I'm unpacking my bag. And there's a note on my bed that said, uh, we're all waiting for you in the bar. So I got done unpacking. I go down to the bar, and the bar was, as I recall, packed with people and sort of dim in there. And I see two hands going like this over the crowd. So I look and I see it's razor waving me over. Now, by this time he and I were already doing this. So I thought, okay, that's strange. Uh, but I knew one thing about razor was if he's been in the bar for any length of time, he's been drinking. And if he's been drinking, he's going to stooge something off, you know, he'll, he'll blab. So I went over and he had, a, he was saving a chair for me. And he goes, Hey, I just wanted to slur in his words. Just want to tell you, uh, congratulations. I said, congratulations for what? He goes, well, you didn't hear from me, but you're getting the belt tomorrow. Okay, now freeze there. The only people that should be aware of this match and what the finish of this match is are Sean, me, and Vince. So I'm wondering why is he even telling me this? You know, it, so I said, well, okay, well, we'll see, we'll see what's going to happen or whatever. I, at that moment, I didn't know if he knew that Sean wasn't performing 
or did. I, I mean, in hindsight, I'm guessing he did. And uh, so now I've not seen Sean since we've been in Germany and we had this whole battalion of Marines beat him up. And uh, so when I pulled into the back of the building, Sean pulls in right next to me, literally at the same exact time. So I'm expecting to see somebody beat to hell, right? I mean, like you've been beaten up by that many people, like a you know week or so, you're going to still be showing some signs of it. He gets out of the car fresh as a daisy. And as we're walking in, I was talking to him about, like, hey, I had a tough time in Rochester, blah, blah, blah. And we get to the dressing room entrance and the makeup girls are across the hall. Sean, I go left into the dressing room and Sean goes right into the makeup room. About a half hour, 45 minutes later, whatever it was, I get on to get a coffee and Sean comes out of the makeup room at the exact same time. Now they've got them all made up, right? He's got the bruise on his face. He's got a contact lens in there. I, said, I, I remember making a joke of something, saying something like, uh, man, those makeup girls must be tough, huh? And he goes, oh. <laughs> laughing at it. And I go down to get my coffee. I then get called to Vince's office, which was the local, uh, uh, I think it was Regina, uh, hockey team. Every town has a, their own pro, semi-pro team. Went down, knocked on the door. He told me to come in. I opened the door, and it's almost pitch black in there. There's, I don't know if you've been in the locker room like that when they turn the lights off. There's always like one security light that stays on. So this is like dim, very dimly lit room. And Vince is sitting at a card table right under that light bulb. So we sit down, and this is my first time talking to Vince since being told that Sean's not performing. He's had a relapse as a concussion. We don't need to be coming Tuesday. This is my first time seeing Vince. So he starts telling me about how great my promos are and what a great heel I am and blah, blah, blah. And uh, then something somehow he blurted out, but it's never I think. It's we here in the World Wrestling Federation believe and what he said was that the fans should always go home happy. We in the World Wrestling Federation believe the fans should always go home happy. And I said to my honest opinion, I said, I would disagree with that. He goes, really? Why? I said, well, as a heel that's drawn a lot of money, sending people home pissed off, and seeing the fervor the next time from them and their buddies that they brought with them, I said, I believe it's it's there's ample evidence to send the fans home pissed off once in a while. And, you know, he agrees to disagree and, you know, and he made points back the, the other way. And, uh, and he said, you know, he's like, like in hindsight, it was like, he was buttering me up, like the, like the throw some pile of shit onto my plate. And I said to him, just let me, let me stop you there. I said, uh, here's my philosophy on the business. You sign my check. So you tell me what you want. Now I would hope that after this many years of being in the business, if I give you a countervailing view, that you would listen to it. You may or may not agree with it. But if you tell me, no, I appreciate that, but I want it this way. My answer to you is going to be, okay, you sign my check. And he goes, well, I appreciate that. And he said, so tonight, you know, I want you to go to the ring and he, I want you to cut one of those scathing promos you do. It's okay. And at that point, Sean's going to come out in his street clothes. He won't okay. Because I have no idea what we're doing at this point. Like, like how are we going to get through this, right? <clears throat> and he said, uh, and at that point, Gorilla Monsoon is going to force him to relinquish the title and give you the title. And I went, oh, my exact words, oh, my fucking God, please don't do that. He went, what? Why? I said, Vince, I said, I've heard every wrestling champion 
growing up and since I've been in the business, say, you'd have to pry this belt from my cold, dead hands. Or until I get a bump on that, then I'll just hand it over to you. I said, I'm sure you can do a chin music. Have him super kick me while I'm doing the promo and cover me one, two, three. Do the match when the match could be done properly. I said, oh, I appreciate that. We're committed to this. And he, now we're sitting here at this point for about 35, 45 minutes talking, me and him alone in this room. And he goes, I want you to grab that belt and you hold it to your chest like it's the most covetous item you've ever held in your life. Because then at that point, so we're in this dimly lit room. I'm looking at Vince. I'm going, what the fuck's he doing with his arm? So I look at his shoulder. He, he keeps his arm out there. So down to his elbow, down to his wrist, down to his fingertips. I'm thinking, why does he hold his arm like this? And I keep looking. And 10 feet to my right, Scott Hall is sitting in one of the lockers in the darkened room. I looked at Vince. I said, what kind of fucking game are you playing here, Vince? He goes, oh, no game, no game. You know, and at that point, Ray's going to come out and Ray's going to beat you for the belt. And I went, oh. And so you don't see that the fans will be smart enough to see and realize this is a baby face to baby face belt drop. It's going to damage Scott. And it's not going to be very welcoming to, to Sean who claims to be, you know, the, the heartbreak kid. Then he's going to give his friend the belt until I can get back. It's horrible Vince, but I'll do whatever you want. He said, we'll do whatever finish you want to do in it. I said, there's only one thing that makes sense. I said, as he's pinning me on the two count, I slide my leg under the bottom rope, which would then break technically the count. Now as a heel, I can get up and say, Scott Hall's a cheater. Blah, 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 blah. Keep my heat. He goes, great. We'll do that. So we go out. We do it exactly as laid out. And if you watch, <laughs> saying it this way, it sounds like I'm putting myself over, but exactly on the two count, my leg slides under the bottom rope. Except the announcers don't even comment on it. Right. And so I thought, okay, lesson learned. You got me. You won't get me twice. And, uh, you know, it just started like a, there was a, what the precipitating factor was in it, I don't know, but I know it started around the time of the Montreal thing. And, you know, quite frankly, I've never been one for screwing any of the guys, especially for wanting to do exactly what the boss said to do. So uh, I'm sure that was like the initiation of it. But then I, like these guys, and it wasn't just me. Like everybody thinks like, okay, well, we can just point the finger here. There was a lot of that going around. I had uh, later seen Ahmed Johnson, uh, couple years ago i think last year at an independent show in california uh and he told me right after i left they turned on him uh there were a lot of people in the dressing room they were doing this to now at what point you got to say to vince like okay vince so either you're fine with this stuff happening you're, you're bringing the guy like me in you know allegedly telling me you got a million dollars wrapped up in the launch of this character but then pissed whenever I stand up for myself and say, I'm not going to keep doing this. I can't afford to keep doing this for 6,400 bucks. Um, it, it just seemed all of it in hindsight seems strange. And, you know, I, I think more like when I hear different facets of the story, I talk about different facets. I can see clear as day. This was done intentionally. And then there's other times I think, well, maybe it was just sort of something that just sort of happened and just sort of morphed into that. But it, Take a few steps back to get the more macro view. Look at the promos that I was laying down on ECW, hammering WWF and WCW, challenging their champions to shoots. Um, and 
and getting it over. ECW was getting over, was building at this point. So to me, it makes far more sense for the conspiracy theory that Vince did this intentionally. He gets the mouthpiece of ECW away from ECW and shut up in this monotone voice talking like this, boring as fuck. Um, and then pulling shit like that in the ring. A, I was aware of it when Scott was doing it in the ring. I was aware of it when Sean was doing it in the ring. Um, and I, again, in hindsight, I'm, I'm more certain than not that Vince was either willingly duped into this, and if so, shame on him, or he was part of it. Shame on him and shame on them. You know, because like, take me first of all, it did not. It really refreshed my batteries going back into ECW. Uh, being away for those six months was, and I tell people this all the time in the gospel truth, the absolute of my 40 years in the business, this Thanksgiving day will start my 41st year of those 40, near 41 years. Now that was far and away the worst six months I'd ever spent in the business. The money was the worst. Uh, the experience was worse than that. Uh, and there, there was no fun to it. Like, so finally going back to ECW was like, man, like, like Dorothy, right. I'm home again. I'm back in Kansas and, and it, it was comfortable. It was fun. It was exhilarating. And then, you know, I get Francine put with me and, you know, she was just such a, a willing student and phenomenal what she did that it, uh, it really, you know, for me, it, it was homecoming for me in more ways than one. I want to pick up on something you said, uh, in the PCO portion of what you were saying and mm -hmm. it's just more of a clarification of exactly what starving somebody means does that mean booking them every night but having them lose in the opener or does it mean booking them minimally and getting them less money either or you know i mean use my example if you're working me 28 days a month and over 28 times four would be what uh 112 is that right um you know, and paying me 6,400 bucks, that's starving my family. I can't pay my bills with that. Or you can sit me at home and not make anything. Um, you know, it could be either or. And I think right after this is when he got pushed down to uh, Ohio Valley and obviously making far less money. Um, Ohio Valley wasn't a thing. Well, I'm, I'm not sure it was open in '95. Actually, I'm trying to think what uh, what where PCO ended up going. He stayed with the WWF until November. It seems like a lot of people left in November, and then uh, the next thing he does is show up in WCW about ten months later. So goodness knows he may he may have even gone back to Canada. Uh, I actually have the Wrestling Observer report from the Montreal. Situ uh, I say Montreal, the other Montreal. You know, the '95 yeah. PCO one. Um, a plastic bottle just fell off the windowsill. That was weird. Okay, so um, I'm just going to rattle through this because it's a full page. Uh, McMahon and Pierre, so there's phone conversations and stuff like that, and uh, your favourite, Tony Greer, sticking his ooter in uh, the whole thing as well. But 50-minute uh, <laughs> yeah. conversations, then McMahon and Pierre agreed to a double count-out. Diesel was really mad about this, made worse because Shawn Michaels was riling him up about it, saying that Pierre should be fired. There was all, uh, there's always been heat between Michaels and Pierre to begin with because Michaels isn't well liked in the WWF dressing room and if people try and defend Michaels by pointing out his work rate, the response usually is that Pierre can do anything uh, with that Sean can <laughs> apparently even though he doesn't have Sean's charisma. Pierre said that he'd do a job for Diesel anywhere else except his hometown. 
but that didn't quell hostilities, and there were lots of bitterness when they went to the ring, although both were professional about it in the ring and actually had a good match. The other surprise is that Diesel was cheered about, uh, by about 60% of the crowd in French-Canadian Montreal. Pierre did a Liger dive onto Diesel on the floor, and both were counted out. After the match, Michaels came out backstage and began cussing him out, and Pierre responded in kind, and Pierre wound up so riled that he went to Diesel's dressing room. But no blows took place, but it's definitely the talk of the territory. And then there was a follow-up uh, from the next week's Observer on October 2nd. There was more to the Diesel Lafitte story that from last week. The rematch between the two in Quebec City saw Lafitte do a leg drop off the top ropes and, uh, rope and wound up landing with his butt on Diesel's face. Diesel got up immediately and started throwing hard punches and jackknifed him for the pin. One WWF had told me the scheduled finish was another double countout, but since the night before, Lafitte was saying he'd do the job anywhere but Montreal. I don't know if that was the case, but they were the topic of all the dressing room talk. Yeah. It, it sounds like a whole lot of fluff and stuff around that, right? Like this, the, the you know, the, first of all, the, the reactions are, the, are what you would see when there's that kind of attention in a match, which, which is all the reason not to have that kind of attention in a match, right? Uh, but I remember on the buildup to it, uh, previous to even going to Montreal, that there was this talk about this match between uh, Carl and uh, uh, Kevin, and that Carl had been doing a lot of work, you know, a lot of like uh, radio work and newspaper work and stuff, meeting with people. And uh, and I heard Sean and Kevin say right in front of me, "Well, this is what Vince wants, and we'll fuck with what Vince wants. This is what we're going to do." Uh, so, you know, it. Uh, you know, this is the problem, I think, when, when you see like these reports that I've seen recently out of AEW. If I am active in the ring and I am the leader of the dressing room, the manager of tonight's brand or whatever the title, the official title is, chances are if you're working with me, I'm probably going to get what I want and because I'm running the thing. And, and, and it's just a, an obvious glaring conflict of interest. And, you know, with it, like it's, I would make the quick suggestion and get back to the point with the tensions that we've already seen in AEW in the last six to 12 months, I would suggest that probably not a good idea to add to that fervor and cause even further problems. And, uh, you know, so like back to WWF, the same thing. It doesn't matter if it's today or if it's 30 years ago, you've got a lot of people that you're trying to sell tickets to in, in a metropolitan area. What's the best way to do that, especially if the, the town's going this way and, you know, the attendance ship is dropping, which means the green is dropping. Uh, you know, I would I would make the argument that Vince's initial call was exactly right on that. And you have uh, the hometown guy that's, you know, working his way up in the company and well known in Montreal and then does all this, you know, favor work and gets the house up somewhat. And then this becomes this boondoggle somehow between decision and showtime. It's uh, no better way to take the pro out of pro wrestling than, than that. I mean, it just, uh, you know, it just really seems like it. And again, like this cancer, like we now have the luxury of time and looking back. Uh, this wasn't something that happened here or there. This was something that was happening consistently and throughout the dressing room. And, you know, you'd have to ask Vince. I mean, as amazing a performer as Sean is, as as much panache as the click had, you're spending a lot of money bringing a lot of other guys in here. Uh, do you want this to all be a 
temporary thing. And sooner or later, I'm guessing most of these guys are going to, Hey, fuck it. I'll just go here and do this instead. Um, you know, you're either in control of your team or you're not. And like, I, I, you know, would make the argument that, you know, if you're the boss in the dressing room, whether it's your company or not, and you're, but you know, if you're Bill Watts or you're Dusty Rhodes or you're Paul Heyman or you're Bischoff or Russo or anybody else, if you're in that boss's chair, the, the crew has to do what the boss sees. Uh, there's, and it took me a long time to figure this out. Like Dusty, there's the, the you know, the infamous story from, uh, 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 New Orleans College uh, from uh, the University of New Orleans, UNO, uh, where Dusty came in and it was decided this is when they were merging the NWA and UWF together. Well, they were meant they were going to really like cut a bunch of the UWF guys, right? And Eddie had met with us earlier in the day and told us this is what they're planning because he had been on the booking committee. This is what they're planning and this is how they're going to do it. I've already spoken to Memphis and they'll take all of us in one swoop. So the plan was made, and ironically, the you know just to show you the difference of the business. Eddie had two meetings that day: one with heels and one with baby faces to keep a kayfabe. And uh, we all got to the building, and you know there was this palpable tension. And Eddie called us into the room and he into the locker room, and he said, "Okay, is everybody ready? Uh, I'll go get Dusty." And he leaves, and he's gone for about five ten minutes. And he comes back and he opens the door and he walks in and Dusty comes right in behind him. And it, it, you got to give Dust credit on this. He takes one step into the room and looks around and realizes and goes, Eddie, can I talk to you for a minute? And he calls him back out of the room for like 15, 20 minutes. And they come back and he goes, oh, we're working tonight. But like that kind of tension that was in there, there, there's no need for any of that. There's nobody in that dress room. Well, maybe a few might get some booba faces, but you're not going to have a, 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 an uprising if you come in and say, okay, Shane tonight you're losing to, and uh, uh, Dr. Death tonight you're losing to, and Sting tonight you're losing to. Nobody's going to go, well, I ain't doing that. I mean, this is what we do, right? So, uh, you know, it, it, that tension that night at UNO was as unnecessary as the tension was at the building in, Mem in uh, Montreal. And it's, I think it's a, a, a bad testament to the way Vince did or didn't run his companies, you know, leaving the, uh, the inmates in control. We will go through some of the segments because we uh, sort of jumped about a bit. So uh, during the uh, match between you and Razor, there's a backstage segment where Yokozuna and Mabel are being trying to be talked into teaming up uh, in right. the main event. But the problem is, is that they didn't count them in in time. So just Mabel and Yokozuna are just looking off camera, and then you it's can just... obviously hear someone go, "All right, go," and then they mean mug each other while cornered. Right? I just wanted to make mention of that because that's really funny. Yes. Um, one, two, three, kid stuff we can save for another time. Uh, there's backstage segments in your house for advert. Then Doc Hendricks dressed as Shawn Michaels is flogging <laughs> Shawn's glasses and leather cap. And I must say, if anyone wore this leather cap other than Shawn Michaels, it's a bit tangoing at the blue oyster bar do you know what i mean <laughs> yeah. like yeah. that, that was definitely my that was definitely my take on it yeah. looking at it like, hey and, and for that privilege 25 dollars plus 3.95 shipping and you do get a nondescript video cassette with that as well um where are we going to go we've got jean pierre lafitte versus bret hart it's a shame because we're sort of going to mostly skip over this because just time constraints really but it's yeah. probably the best match on the card really hard hitting and i think it's a testament to brett who 
1995, this was sort of his wilderness year as like a singles main eventer because he's feuding with the likes of, uh, with all due respect to them, PCO, Carl uh, Willett, uh, Isaac Yankum, Jerry Lawler, Hakushi. You know, these none of these, as great as Jerry Lawler is, none of these are main right. event names. And yeah. at the end of the year, he becomes WWF champion again, and then somehow he manages to lose every match pretty much en route to losing clean to Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania 12. Now, <laughs> as much as I want to talk about the match, we'll have to mostly skip it. I'm going to ask you one question about Brett, and this has been a criticism leveled at Brett. And keep in mind that Brett's like maybe my second favorite wrestler of all time. <laughs> Brett always took his foot off the gas. So he's been accused when it came to house shows. But when it was TV or pay-per-view, that's when he'd really turn it on. Is that uh, a criticism that's fair to direct to Brett? I, I, on house shows, it was there especially wasn't so much that like, unlike other places before where you'd sit in the dressing room and like it was, you know, Watts expected you to watch the show, you know, you uh, to learn. It wasn't so much so there. I get the, the, to me, the recollections of the WWF WWE locker room was, you know, pretty much just sort of do what you're going to do and you be over here. Going to be, we're not going for three more matches. And it was more nonchalant. So I, I can honestly say I don't ever recall watching a Brett match for the ones that I did where I'd see him being half-assing it. Um, you know, I, I'm sure you could probably find that from any of us at any particular point. The thing I noticed about the match with Brett and, and Carl was, like you said, the best on the card. Uh, but Brett is, again, I, I think there was a little bit of sloppiness on Carl's part, which I, I think was built into that character too. Like it, he should be a bit more haphazard, but with Brett, you know, taking the front turnbuckles. Um, uh, have you ever take, cause this is something else I was going to mention. Have you ever taken a front turnbuckle like that? Cause he takes two in this match and it just, and I think hurts. it almost never went wrong, but he, I think once he bruised the sternum really badly doing it. Yeah. It hurts like hell. Cause you know, we're not typically used to getting hit in the chest like that. And when you go in, you know, you have to understand like the physics of it. So you're going into a corner, you know, it's basically like this and, you know, Brett's this wide. So you're going in there, your arms are going to be hitting the ropes. And I, and I did catch last night how Brett did it because a lot of people that do do it will go in and they'll slow down and they'll sort of like do the, the slap up under, um, you know, he went into it hard and, and had to take that on his chest. The reason there, and there's a lot of danger to that because, uh, <laughs> With you know, like the, theoretically, the heart punch is supposed to make your heart quiver for a second, so you pass out. I can pin you. In reality, that that's a that's a shoot. If you get hit just exactly right in the sternum, look at the guy in the NFL football game last year. Right, I forget his name offhand, uh, but he took that shot and he's down and technically died on the field for a few seconds. Had they not had the defibrillator there, they, that guy would have been dead. Uh, this is something else that also happens in car wrecks quite often. The driver gets hit in the chest hard from the uh, steering wheel and the heart begins to quiver. It doesn't, it's not like the heart gets hit and it just stops, right? It gets hit and it's trying to figure itself out and it's doing this instead of boom, 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 boom. Well, this you're on your way to dying. It's just a matter of time at that point. So that's a, it's a really risky move to do, especially the way Brett did it. It's like those things that you, you think you look back on now and you're like, man, I used to do that uh, because there's, you know, somebody it might have been funk or somebody else told me at one time here, you know, each of us has a bump tank, 
you have so many gallons in it. When that tank is empty, there's no gas station to go refill it. So make those bumps count when you're going to take those things. Uh, so like that said, obvious, obviously any of us working in the business is going to th throw something a little more into like when the cameras are on and rolling than say you would in, in a house show. But I, I would, I'd be hard pressed to see it, like see a match and say, okay, here's a, here's an old eight day, you know, super eight movie from, you know, whatever building that Brett was in and watch. He's just lazy as hell. I just, I don't buy it. He probably, you know, was taking a lot less punishment than they say he would on TV. Uh, Cause that's your money shot. You do it in the house. Those 10 or 20,000 people see you do on TV, 10 or 20 million or more. See ya. So uh, I, I would, I wouldn't buy that wholesale. I uh, would disagree. Now, going from a second favourite wrestler of all time to my favourite, British Bulldog. How can he not be? I mean, you know, he's the local boy. Yeah. Now, he... Oh, you're from England. I get it I now. Know. So there's... <laughs> I know you thought I was from Australia for several months. But, you know. G'day, mate. Yeah, g'day, mate. Well, <laughs> look at that. I'm actually yeah. drinking this absolute piddle as well. It's all I I'm sorry, it's all I had left in the fridge. <laughs> so, so uh, Bulldog is announced as Owen's replacement. Now, uh, I told you, do you, do you remember the story why Owen actually legitimately wasn't in the arena? No, I didn't hear this. His second daughter, his, sorry, second child, his first daughter, I think Athena, I hope I'm saying uh, the, the right name, was being born. And I think she was born like the day before. And something that really surprised me is that Vince McMahon and J.J. Dillon let him take a day off or, you know, basically almost missed the pay-per-view for the birth of his child because normally I wouldn't think they'd give a rat's ass if, if there was a child born or not. See, that's the ironic part with Vince. That really, I mean, this is going to sound crazy to people. Uh, when my dad got sick uh, in 19, it was like December of 1990, I'm in WWF and having a fairly decent run, you know, making good money. And I can't say a negative thing about Vince or the promotion at that time. And I went to Vince really apprehensive. I, I, but my dad was going to be need to go on oxygen, uh, uh, chronic uh, obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD, and a weakened heart, uh, heart failure. And so he was going to be put on oxygen. Well, living alone, especially with smokers that get COPD, the danger is they're going to sneak and smoke anyway, right? And when you have oxygen in the house, especially a tank of oxygen, that's a bomb. Yeah. Uh, liquid uh, liquid oxygen is, is highly explosive. And so he couldn't live alone. And I had to come off. And I remember it was in Niagara Falls. I went and called, told Vince I had to talk to him about something personal. And he, we walked over. Uh, the Niagara Falls uh, arena is attached to the convention center. And we walked over, and they had a, one of these rooms set up with all the tables were open and plates and everything on it, ready for a reception or something. And we walked over, and we sat down. We had a really, really good conversation for like an hour. And I finally said to him, so I, I need to be able to be home to take care of my dad. And his exact words to me were, you've been a great employee since you've been here. Uh, doors always open to come back. Uh, he said, but family comes first. You go home and take care of your dad. And, you, you know, so like, with what you just said, doesn't surprise me. Uh, but in the next breath, you know, he might say like, if you know, well, my dad's funeral's tomorrow. Well, we need you raw. You know, there's this weird dichotomy in Vince that way. Um, you know, he ironically had paid for, I'd heard allegedly for Bam Bam's funeral really? and, and I, I, now the, this, the story gets convoluted. I heard more of the story from, um, uh, 
the second Doink the Clown. Oh God, it's so bad with names again. Uh, Not Ray Apollo. Anyway, Ray Apollo. Yes. Jesus, where did I pull that one and, out from? Crikey. Yeah, right. Okay, and home run there by the uh, by the English English kid. Uh, Australian, thank you very much with the <laughs> So uh you know, he uh uh yeah, I, I mean, you know, he uh he he was good. Vince was good in some stuff that way, in other ways he was he was not, you know, you you know, paying for Bambi, and then I heard from Ray that some people pitched in money. And then, like, Vince wanted some of it back. I mean, it's just a really weird, convoluted story. But the fact that Vince paid for it, regardless of what the follow-up stuff is, it shows you somewhere in there this guy's got a heart. You know, it's, it's uh, you, know, it, you know, and I'm sure to him, it's probably, hey, this guy saved WrestleMania, whatever the number was, 12 or whatever it was. And, uh, uh you know, like doing that and really didn't want the fanfare for it. And I'd heard that before that went public from a guy that was really good friends with Bam Bam and all of his Polly Baikow, uh, had come to Legends of the Ring and said, Hey, you know, Vince didn't want anybody to know this, but and I, and I didn't know it to be truth then, you know, from just one guy saying it. But then you start hearing the story more and more. And then, like Ray telling you the follow up story to, okay, the guys that pitched in at the club, like, you know, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, so uh, there was something else to like. I think, oh, that's what it was. That's what it was. The guy that collected the money at the bar, like, went and gave a lot of the money back. But then <laughs> WWE sent him a ten ninety nine for for the money. So you got to declare it on your taxes. That's what it was. It was something. <laughs> Like, like I, I told me the rest of that story. And I said, "Why does that not surprise me in the least?" It's just <laughs> too much. But yeah, we. Uh, I don't think we're gonna have enough time to talk about Owen's ribs and stuff. We'll we'll talk about it another time. I promise you. We'll um, talk about the match, and then we'll pretty much shut down the podcast after that. Uh, before the match starts, though, Alundra Blaze is brought out to model the In Your House 3 t-shirt, just $20.395 shipping with free videotape. That's the most butt-ugly t-shirt I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> it's disgusting. But, but yeah, don't you think, like, like in watching that last night, the, again, I hadn't watched that since then, the the sort of cheesy stage setup and all that, like when they started, like once they're in the ring, it's all good and fine. But like all the rest of that stuff, to me, when I watch it, it instantly dates this. I, I love like, it. Like that, that's suddenly, why I love it. I love the yeah. house setup. But that's just, that's just more than maybe anything else that screams. That just presses the nostalgia button for me. I love the yeah. house setup. It might be cheesy as anything, but just as a fan <laughs> of that age, it's just, yeah, it's just absolute nostalgia for me. So I love it for that reason. Yeah. And that really is the lore of wrestling, right? I mean, that's a, to every generation of wrestling fan. You know, like my son yesterday, I was talking to him and his big hero, uh, when, you know, coming up and watching wrestling, he loved the Hardys. Uh, Jeff Hardy was like his guy. He, one Halloween, he went with the, you know, things on his arm and his face painted up and everything. But he, same as me, he had been a, like his mother and I always joke around now, like if he hadn't gone into music, he would have wanted to be Spider-Man, right? Cause everything was Spider-Man as a kid. Uh, so like, but my son's generation, it's, it's Jeff Hardy, like the Hardy boys. Uh, to my generation, it's Bruno. Your generation, it's something else. This I mean, it's that house. each of those things. <laughs> <laughs> you wanted to live in that house, didn't you? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, 
it would have been a bit cold in the winter. There's not a lot, not a lot of insulation. Yeah, a one sided <laughs> house it was. You know, in the first yeah. in the first in your house, they actually gave away a house, uh, and that was the big law of it, and that was the big thing. And then and then a boy like under eighteen, way under eighteen, won it, and then he immediately turned around and sold it for like one hundred and seventy five thousand dollars in ninety five no, money as well. Yeah, yeah, good for them, man. It's great. I, you know, it's those little things like that you hear. It, it was that kind of stuff that, regardless of if you're an ECW or WCW and competing against WWF, when you would hear that kind of stuff, it's just like, ugh. you know, like, it's sort of like the Roadrunner and the Coyote, right? You're all, he's always ready to grab it and beep, beep, boom, and he takes off. You know, Vince, again, pains me to say, but he had a vision of something that I don't think would have permeated anywhere in the business at that time. You know, the guy like the Dominics and the Brutos and those guys that were in the business coming in and who would come in and say, I'm getting rid of all these guys going to bring in all these other guys and make them deans and goons and all this other stuff. And somehow he's made that work. You know, when I saw it sell for $9 billion to UFC uh, endeavor, uh, I thought that's more than double what the UFC was bought for. And I'm still interested to see how it works because I just, you know, I, I look at my kids, how fervor, how much fervor they have for UFC. They love it. They, it's like they transgressed, uh, transcended, I should say, from uh, professional wrestling into UFC. And so when I'll call my son, it's, hey, dad, you see on this fight, it's going to be this guy. So usually I, I, I see it, but I'm not like, I love when I watch it, but I don't know this person from that person because I don't get a chance to watch it enough. But Moose, the same thing. So we'll be in the car. He and Moose will talk about it. Um, and it's the same kind of passion that I had about wrestling as a kid that you have about wrestling now that Chris has about wrestling. And so I'm curious, like how I, I don't see my kids. And I think they're very typical of UFC fans going to say, oh, okay. We're going to get some of this WWF wrestling back now. I, I just they just don't seem like like compatible uh, uh, egg to hole to me if if that makes sense. It seems like these are two incompatible things being tried to put together. I don't think the excuse me the UFC purist fan wants to see WWE wrestling, and I don't think many of the kids watching WWE would either get or want to get UFC. So I, I'm going to be interested to tell you, here's the one thing I'm certain of. I'm sure Vince will have a plan. I'm sure Dana White has a plan and all the other people behind Endeavor. Uh, but it's it's going to be interesting to watch and learn. I think Vince's plan is to cash out 16%, make $3 billion profit, and then retire on uh, – because he's got a boat called the Sexy Bitch. With that kind of money – that's true. Does he really? He he. That is true. He has a boat called the Sexy Bitch. So I think with the three billion, he's going to live on his own planet called the Sexy Bitch too. <laughs> <laughs> so that may be something yeah. that might happen. Um, yeah. Right. So our, our main event. I'll let you take over. So it is Bulldog, who uh, luckily brought a fresh pair of, uh, of tights with him. So you know he looks all fresh and clean and everything. Of course, like like <laughs> yeah. he knew. And uh, Yoko Zuna, uh, Zuna, Zuno versus. Diesel and Sean Michael. So any talking point you want to talk about it, go ahead. Yeah. I, you know, and, and, and for anybody's ever heard me talk, will, will hear me say, like, I can rave about Sean's in ring work, right? I mean, he is really, really top notch in the ring. What I've been hearing lately is people say, well, I think he's better than Flair. And there are a few points to make to that. Flair was coming out of the black boots and tights era, right? And he, came up with this like over-the-top flamboyant, amazing in-ring performer. Sean had the luxury of growing up watching 
a Ric Flair and guys like Ric Flair perform. So he had a bit of an up, not detracting one bit from what Sean can do in the ring. Uh, there's the one spot in the ring where Sean starts making the flurry. I think he does a, a flying burrito off the one uh, side, comes up and goes to hit something again. Then he gets backdropped and he comes up and he spins around and turns right into the clothesline from Bulldog. Again, that ring positioning to me is something that, as crazy as it sounds, you'd be surprised at how few guys can always have themselves in that right place. Uh, you know, the, to me, when I hear the phrase ring generalship, that that's what comes to mind is knowing where you are and knowing how to get into that next thing and out of it. Uh, Yoko taking that bump through the ropes, um, you know, as gigantic as he was, uh, but as nimbly, like, what, watch the bump where he gets hit, I think by Razor and he takes the roll through the ropes to the floor. It, it looks like something you'd see a 150 pound wrestler do not a, not a 600 pound wrestler. Um, but I remember when he was still Coquina, when I first met him in, in mid in a, a continental down in Alabama, he was 375, 380. And he moved honest to God, like a cat. I mean, it was freaky to watch a guy that size, just zip, zip, zip around the ring. And when he would come back at 375, almost 400 pounds, it wasn't like he was, you know, he was like any one of those breathing coming back from the ring. You know, it was just a really, really a machine. I, I always say it about the Samoans, all of them. I, you know, from getting the, the pleasure of meeting off and seeking uh, first stepping into the business, working with Fatu and Sammy, and then all the guys that have come after, they come out of the womb. They know how to work mm -hmm. these guys. It's, it's incredible. Um, but yeah, his, his moving around at that size again, though, you see both of them when the time comes for the bumping, they are as the heels, they're very well aware of who Vince's favorites are. <laughs> and you can see them like getting out of their way, like to really, you know, go to work here to show Vince that, but again, that's what we do, right? You know, it's, uh, if you think you can do something to shine up the guy that Vince loves, of course, that's going to be beneficial for you, especially once you've just gotten your heat and everything. Uh, the other thing that Sean does in the match that really impresses me is, as uh, almost trite as this sounds, is when they win the match, Sean goes in and, and he, he, it looks so legitimate to me. Like he's excited. He's jumping up and down. And I mean, you watch that and go, okay, like, see, this is the other side. Like someone who goes, hey, it doesn't look very cool. Maybe I should like do it this way or do it you can just see Sean is just going with it, you know, and, and, uh, he, for the guy, for the kid in me that still loves watching wrestling, when I see a guy like him perform, I can very easily separate the, my experiences with him, good and bad and become that Mark watching him like, geez, ew, damn, he's good. You know, like it's, uh, but like I told Moose last night, that to me is the epitaph. Like it, it, and I don't intend it to sound this way. I, I I mean that in every semblance of this, every syllable in that sentence. Sean is a phenomenal in-ring performer. That said, it always struck me as odd that there were two things about Sean that stuck struck me. The first one was after, you know, after this click thing was that he clearly didn't have enough faith in his own ability that he resorted to becoming this uber politic, like more political than Ric Flair. Uh, but that he was also always running in his head this imaginary, I'm better than Flair. 
you know, and, and like, I, I can honestly say I never measured myself to anybody in the business. Uh, if anything, I think I look at those guys that came before me, all those guys I always talk about the, the Brunos and the Hardys and the Dominics and so many of these guys, I think like Piper and you know, Steamboat and uh, these guys like on a different plateau, like, man, they're, they're, they're at the mountaintop up there. These guys, because they're just so incredible to watch and effortless. And when you see them making effort, and Sean does that, you know, Sean gets in and really makes it look effortless. Uh, Kevin, by this time, because now this is after we had seen him, like when uh, Ricky and I were together in WCW, he was, uh, they had him in the wizard hat and what was that gimmick? Oz. Uh, Oz. Oz. Yeah, Oz. Then they had him Just in a, he Oz. was Master Blaster, then he was Oz, and then he was Vinny Vegas. So yeah, yes. triumvirate of uh, clown yeah. gimmicks, yeah. Yeah, and, and just, yeah, he, he always looked a bit awkward in the ring in WCW. In the UWF, somebody got into him. I don't know if it was like being around Sean or Vince or somebody got to him, and he covers up his weaknesses very well. Uh, I, I was never big on the way he throws punches, but I, you know, when you're seven foot tall and like thrown down to most people, you know, not the easiest thing to do. Uh, but in any other promotion, you would say, okay, yeah, mm, but like you'd see a cap to that. But somehow in the WWF, it worked. Um, you know, like Moose had pointed out last night, uh, when you go and look and think of like what Vince did, every star he took from WCW, he sort of like knocked down the rung, uh, you know, Terry Tanner became the red rooster, uh, you know, uh, Pat Patterson. I mean, uh, uh, oh, shoot. uh, Dustin Rhodes comes in. You know, Dusty Rhodes comes in. Uh, suddenly, Dusty is in black and white poke or black and yellow polka dots, and Dustin's playing this effeminate, over the top character, which he played phenomenal, by mm, the way. Absolutely. And uh, so those guys were smart enough to just make it work, right? Um, you know, but it's it's almost like every mid Carter he brought up from WCW suddenly becomes like superstars in the WWF. And I think that speaks more to just the, the fan base that you're playing to, which suggests that there were very different fan bases in WCW, NWA, and WWF. Because, but then oddly, these guys leave and they take those WWF sports entertainment characters to WCW and suddenly they're right back in the mix. So they were, I think WCW parlayed more off of Vince's ability to get them over than, uh, than the other way around. Uh, you know, so it's, it's fascinating to see because like having been around as long and watching, uh, you know, like Vinny Vegas and Oz and, and the diamond stud and all, you know, again, like uh, Scott had the same ability in WCW that he had in WWF. I would argue maybe more because he couldn't rely on this kind of stuff in WCW, but for some reason just wasn't getting over there. And then they take him up there and just, you know, slap this little bit of the character on it. And you know, I, I it's for me, I didn't even think he especially played the character well. Like, you know, the hey yo and the fake. It didn't sound at all Latino to me. Yeah, uh, you know, it just it it just seemed like almost like a wink wink, we're gonna make fun of this type of thing. And and yet it got over there, I think, because you were playing to a lot of kids. For the wrestling fans that were still watching WWF. You could see, like in in my match with Razor on the Senior House Three, he can do it. He can go. He knows how to get the stuff done. Uh, would later 
just decide he's going to take the easier route to that. And uh, there was one thing that popped out at me during the match, like right at the end, after the whole uh, pushing and shoving thing with uh, uh, X-Pac, somebody right behind the announcers holding up a sign, uh, Dean Douglas is in your house or in my house or something like that. There was a sign over there that, and I thought if Scott saw that, he would have become a boo-boo face real fast. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't like when in, in Germany, like when they were like people were holding out like, welcome to Deutschland, uh, uh, the franchise Dean Douglas. And, oh, boo. They're all cheering me. I'm like, dude, like, come on. This is, this is we, the uh, fun of our business. Do you know, I'm going to add one more thing to the Razor Ramon thing. Then, we'd, then we're going to do the uh, end of this match, and then we'll shut the podcast down. Uh, with Razor Ramon, I don't know if you know about this character, because obviously it's based on Scarface, and it had like mm-hmm. just dozens of vignettes. In one of the vignettes, if you listen very, very carefully, it says that uh, Razor claims that he owns a golf course. Really? Yes. Very, very, just in one of them, he's just he's talking about how much he owns, and then I'm sure at some point he says... Oh, I own a golf course and boats and cars and stuff like that. I'm just that's the oddest sort of fact about the Razor Ramon character. Anyway, thought you'd yeah. I, I just thought yeah, about like- him. So uh, at the end of the match, lots of fun. Bulldog and Yoko land on each other, leading to the finish, which sees Owen Hart, who legitimately, as we say, wasn't actually in the arena until very, very late on in his gear, full gear. Turns yep. up, ruins it for everybody, gets pinned immediately, and then <laughs> uh, Heartbreak Kid, Shawn Michaels, and Diesel win the tag titles at 1542. The problem is the next day, Gorilla Monsoon reverses the decision. Now, and this will mean absolutely nothing to you, but because it's a reversal of the decision, but in the record books, Sean and Diesel are still recognized as tag team champions for less than one day, which means that adds to the tally of titles that Shawn Michaels does not lose cleanly to, or in fact, to anyone. He's stripped yet again of another belt. So I thought you'd like that fact as well. Uh, It's sort of a a modern twist on the dusty finish. Mm. And um, I thought this would just be nice to sort of just uh, end the show on. Explain the dusty finish to us. Why it's called the dusty finish and how overused did it get in the end? Oh, it it, it was ubiquitous uh the dusty finish is i've got two top stars wrestling each other it could be they hate this character they love that character whatever but these are two major guys and we obviously can't make the decision of if we beat the heel he might not draw if we beat the baby face he might not be over so we're going to do some kind of if somebody's running in somebody's interfering uh there's a slip on a banana peel just this sort of non-finish. It's a finish, but it's not a finish. So if you watch towards the end of Dusty's booking time in in the NWA at this time, as soon as the match gets to the point where the, you know, the activity starts to pick up and pace a bit, the fans are sensing that it's going home. Watch what half the audience or more does. Here's the ring. The fans will go stand up and turn their head. Who's coming in? Who's running in? It's and that that's the telltale that this was incredibly overdone. That you'd conditioned the fans like Pavlov's dogs to oh, the the pace has picked up a bit. It must be it's been 10, 12, 15 minutes, so somebody must be coming. And it just in, in the business vernacular, it means like to me the inability for the booker to say I'm going to put my eggs in this basket or that basket. And so we just sort of do this sort of wishy-washy thing that, to me, takes both of them down. 
you know, there's no elevation coming off of it. It's what's considered like the safer bet. And, you know, I think in wrestling, uh, sometimes safer bet isn't always, always the best bet. Now, the post-main event, I won't ask you any more questions. Don't worry. I'm just going to go a bit of preamble, then we'll shut down. Goldust defeats Bob Holly in 12-11, apparently uh, in the house show run-up to his debut on TV. Uh, Goldust wouldn't get that much reaction until he took the wig off, and then everyone realized it was Dustin Rhodes, and then he'd get a big reaction. Ahmed Johnson defeats Skip with Sonny. I'm not even sure Ahmed had debuted on TV at this point in 530. Undertaker with Paul Bearer defeats King Mabel and Sermo at 704. The next day, as I say before, Gorilla Monsoon reverses the decision. Marty Janetti. Uh, this is all in the follow-up, sorry, after the pay-per-view. Marty Janetti re-debuts yeah. with the company after last being seen in early 1994. I asked a question about, do you remember why he was fired the previous time? But it was in 94, so I doubt it. But he is the most fired man in WWF history with either eight <laughs> or nine times fired. Amazing. Really? Uh, yes. Uh, someone actually on the internet actually did the count up and every reason why. It's very interesting. Uh, the Bulldog and Deeswood feud leading to that awful match in your house. For, and I say that as Bulldog's my favourite. Even yeah. even as a kid, I that was a, whoa, that was a stinkeroonie of a match. Everyone hated it. Uh, I say that, uh, yeah, even it was dog shit. Uh, one, two, three, kid and Razor wrestle each other with Razor beating him over and over again. One, two, three, kid turns heel and eventually joins with Teddy Biassi. Mabel manages to break Undertaker's eye socket, uh, necessitating Taker to wear that Phantom of the Opera mask for a few months. And you mm-hmm. and King Mabel were fined $7,500 each, kayfabe, of course, for interfering in a raw main event. And the last thing I've said here, which is... One of my favourite facts about WWF at this period, Jerry Lawler was suspended above the ring in a cage during a Bret Hart versus Isaac Yankin match, and during that match, Lawler suffered a nosebleed, marking the first time since WrestleMania 8 in 1992 that blood appeared on WWF television. There you go. How about that? Wow. I don't know what shocks me more, that somebody took the time to figure that out, to tabulate that out, this is the first time. Uh, was that yours or was that somebody else's? I, I think that's actually a, a weird, proper underground fact, but I knew that before I reread it. But I think yeah. the last time, this is off the top of my head, I think it's WrestleMania 8 because uh, the story is that Ric Flair and Randy, uh, Blading was already banned by this point. This is 92. This is the Indian, is it Indianapolis? Anyways, it's the last stadium show for a while. Anyway, they, uh, they razored, or I think... I can't remember if it was Flair or Savage, and they get fined. But unbeknownst to them, uh, Bret Hart and Roddy Piper also had the same plan. But the thing is, uh, they were a lot more uh, subtle about it, and uh, they convinced Vince that it was a hard way, and did not yeah. get a fine. So, having <laughs> having said all that, that was In Your House 3. Thank you very much for watching. We're on every single Tuesday. I should have been saying this on all the podcasts, but I didn't. Uh, so now I'll throw it to you, franchise, to thank the fans and do the outro yeah appreciate you being here learning at franchise university now you know all the low down and scuttlebutt about in your house three and a whole lot of other subjects but for now class dismissed